The political circus is gearing up for 2024. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from the costs of the political elite. Join the Mises Institute in Fort Myers, Florida on November 4th for an event dedicated to the White House, the Fed, and the economy. We'll cut through the campaign rhetoric to look at the future of the U.S. economy, with a lineup including Bob Murphy, Patrick Newman, Jonathan Newman, and Murray Sabrin. Register now at Mises.org FL23. Human Action Podcast listeners can receive a special $10 discount using promo code FL2023. Audience numbers for Mises Institute podcasts are going through the roof, and we want to thank our great listeners with a special deal. Per Bilan's primer on Austrian economics, How to Think About the Economy, has become one of the best sellers in the Mises store, and we're giving it away for free to our podcast listeners. This short book is a great refresher for understanding proper economic logic and also a perfect introduction to economics for friends and family. So get your free copy of How to Think About the Economy by visiting Mises.org slash H-A-Pod-Free. That's H-A, like human action, pod-free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Brian, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks for having me back. Well, Brian, you are always my go-to when it comes to discussing the work of economists who are outside the fold of the uh, of the elect, as it were. And so um, the recent Nobel, and we're going to get people commenting, I know it's not really the Nobel Prize, folks, at this point. We've beaten that horse to death. Um, the recent winner of the economics pseudo Nobel Prize was Claudia Golden, and I saw you had a nice thread on Twitter going through some of her contributions. So, can you just thirty thousand foot view right now explain who she is and and what the award was for? Yeah, so she won the award last week uh, for her work on understanding of labor markets, particularly how women's labor market outcomes are affected by policies, by social norms, things like that. I think she's best thought of as a kind of a old style, and I mean that in a way that I love this style, old style uh, economic historian. She uses econometrics, she uses archival work, she digs into a lot of different stuff, things that people thought were impossible to kind of you know, measure and quantify. She finds data on these things and looks across countries, across uh, across time to, you know, bring a, a very rich picture to economic history overall. But particularly, she's kind of focused in, and she won the prize for for women's economic history. But she's also done stuff on on the effects of slavery. I think th- her dissertation was on that under the uh, uh, under the famous uh, Chicago economic historian Robert Fogel. Um, she's done stuff on immigration, really, really wide-ranging. Uh, I think the thing that makes her unique, one, at the time, she was really putting emphasis on uh, uh, on women because at the time, a lot, of, a lot of people who were looking at labor markets were just like dropping women from the sample. They just wouldn't think about them and think we're only about men. Well, women are too complicated. We have to distinguish married women, non-married women. When they have kids, everything goes. Uh, and so, you know, up through, you know, let's, let's say the 70s and 80s, it was very common to only talk about men and talk about the labor market as if it was just men. Um, and, and so she has really been 
at the forefront. She won it alone, which is a unique thing in the last few decades. She won it alone for being at the forefront of this research program. Well, probably they realized they couldn't possibly give it to her and a man at the same time. That wouldn't, that, that, that wouldn't have looked great for sure. <laughs> there was a lot of talk of her getting an award for economic history that she could have shared with, uh, with other people or maybe labor markets more generally. Uh, but yeah, yeah if, it, if it's going to be a, a, a prize for women's labor market outcomes, it's, it, it had to be her. Okay. And besides my snarky uh, joke there, just in terms of her work, you mean not just for the optics, but also it, she may have had co-authors here and there, but this was clearly like her research yeah. program. Exactly. And, and and she had co-authors on a lot of her big books, a lot of her big papers, including uh, Lawrence Katz, who's another person that's put out as a, as a possible winner. Uh, but this is really her area for sure. Optics aside, like this is, this is her specialty. They, they would write papers together. Yes. About women, but they'd also write, uh, you know, men and women labor market outcomes. But the real focus clearly is, is, is from her. I don't know if, Lawrence Katz has written a paper on women specifically that's not with Claudia Golden. Maybe that's true, but mm. okay. Uh, why don't so at some point I do want to just give you the floor back and have you go through and like do some of her greatest hits. But I think at this point, just to make sure, I, I can I can imagine some of our viewers and what they're thinking right now. And so let me just distill. Let me speak on their behalf to you, and then let you answer. So I can imagine some listeners thinking, oh my gosh, are we doing this thing again? That, yeah, I know the feminists are out there with their wage gap stuff and the women only make and whatever, you know, the, the number goes up over time, but let's say it's whatever, 85 cents. To, what, what is the current one? Do you know? Just so I, uh, the, the last I heard, and, and I'm a theorist by training, so don't quote me on this, but I think 83 is the number that people throw around okay, now. Okay. So people will say right now, latest statistics, um, as of what this economic theorist said, is eighty. The women in the United States earn, and that's that's U.S. Is what you're saying? There? Yeah, yeah, U.S. Women US. in the U.S. make eighty three cents to the man's dollar, and so you know, give me and and now I'm still doing the hypothetical human action podcast listener saying, but this is ridiculous. I have seen people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Block and others debunk the, those statistics, and they do crazy stuff like they don't take account of the the major that the person had. And in some cases, they might say it's a it's a full-time worker, but they don't account for the fact that the full-time male workers actually per week or work more hours than the female uh workers in general and things like that. They don't do, you know, years on the job. And so when you start or the riskiness of the you know, men are coal miners and taxi cab drivers, you're more likely to get killed in those occupations. So even if you ignored everything else and just knew that certain risky occupations paid higher because of that that right there would partly explain. So when you adjust for all these common sense, obvious things, the so-called wage gap doesn't completely go to zero, but you whittle away most of it. And so I don't even, you know, why are we even having this conversation? So somebody got a Nobel prize for, for that. So go ahead. Why don't you respond? So there, there's, there's a lot in there. Uh, I would say she didn't win the Nobel prize for documenting the wage gap. They're trying to measure to find the best estimate of what it is today or what it was in 2000. Uh, 
her work is much more big picture about how labor markets have changed, things like employment rates, labor force participation rates, uh, the types of jobs. Like she's a she's a uh, an economic historian, as I said. That, like this is something that your listeners should love. She is doing economic history. She's not she's not testing theories. Right. She's doing history. She's measuring stuff that happened in the past, not saying that it's a, a you know, a, a fact of nature that can never be overcome, not saying that it's something that means that therefore we need socialism or something. She's documenting differences across time, across genders, across different groups in things like their pay, things like their salary, you know, so like hourly wage versus their total salary, things like labor force participation. So, so what she has done is, is like I said in a Twitter thread, I had, um, that like, it's, it's hard to kind of boil down with what it's for last year, two of the, the winners got it for one paper. It was, they wrote down a model of bank runs and we can argue about that. And you and I, but would have a wonderful conversation about that. But she, she has really got it for like a, a wide ranging research program that doesn't kind of have that, like, this is the takeaway that you can bring up at a cocktail party and really impress people. Or this is the snarky comment you can make on Twitter to respond to someone. Hers is a, a, a much broader, uh, much broader approach, I think a, a better approach to how we think about uh, uh, different labor market outcomes. Now, I think people have a instinctual, some, your listeners, people that I, you know, interact with sometimes have an instinctual um, repulsion to this discussion about about gaps because it's like an implicit idea that the, everything should be equal. And you, you reference soul. I mean, I think soul is great on this that people are just different. And I think I think uh, Golden would say the exact same thing. People are different. Like the the it's not like we want to use policy to force this number to be one instead of eighty three or a hundred instead of eighty three. Um, but it's different and people should, should be interested in, in how these differences arise, what, what, what's changed over time. Um, I think one confusion I see in the discussion is that, that some people are either trying to make the number as big as possible for some political reason. Other people are trying to make the number as small as possible for some political reason. And I think neither of those should be the way we go. We should be trying to, uh, find proper numbers for the question at hand. And the question at hand will be a big uh, factor in kind of what is the right counterfactual. If you're just interested in what is the average salary of the average woman in the U.S. versus the average man in the U.S., that is just a number that you could be interested in. Again, this is not about policy or anything like that. That could be a number that you're interested in. In the same way that you may be interested in how 50-year-old salaries are different than 25-year-old salaries. Because it tells you something about, you know, something about the labor market that you, you are interested in. Now, often we're not super interested in the, the 50-year-old versus the 20-year-old. Because we're like, why is that an interesting comparison? Why... You know, it's comparing apples to oranges in some in some important respect. And so, therefore, we try to do these controlling for variables and things like that to try to make a better a better apples to apples comparison. Okay, we're only going to look at uh, graduates of a of a particular uh, school. We're only going to look at people who are physics majors. We're only going to look at people who have not been married. And, and depending on how you slice the data, you get different outcomes. And one of the things that she has shown 
Uh, again, it depends on exactly the, the, the subsample that you're looking at, but a very compelling paper on like just thinking through that, that the gap exists in an interesting way, the gap for a particular group, is they looked at, I forget who the co-authors were, uh, they looked at graduates from the University of Chicago's MBA program, prestigious MBA program. Um, so you'd think that men and women who got into the same program, graduated from the same program, maybe somewhat similar. I mean, there's other ways you can try to compare them. Uh, and they show that after graduation, men and women worked the same amount, their labor force participation was the same amount, their wages were the same amount, okay? So right after graduation from an MBA program, so it's not just from an undergrad, these are like more advanced people in their careers, uh, and that the gap only arises in this, in this very weird subsample, right? This isn't most of the population. Most of the population does not go to University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this weird subsample, the gap appears after uh, people have children and Women drop out of the labor market. Men stay in the labor market the same amount. Women's pay drops. Okay, so on and so forth. Now, that's that's a number you could be interested in measuring. Like, what is the what is the uh, relative pay difference of graduates of the University of Chicago? Yada 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 to fit that situation. It doesn't tell us anything about you know how to improve women's outcomes in in. Uh, in inner cities, it doesn't tell us anything about how to raise men's outcomes that don't graduate high school. It's just a, a number you could be interested in for getting a richer picture of labor markets overall. And I think that that is what her work really does. And I, I, again, to circle back, it really depends on the question that you're interested in and therefore whether you're kind of making the right comparison. Now, if you're interested in what would happen if we would somehow get more women to major in physics, that's a different question. And we, we want to know what is the relative pay difference of men and women in physics, maybe. Okay. But again, it's, it's context dependent on, on the question at hand. And so I, I think broad discussions of the wage gap or the, you know, the, the labor force participation gap I don't get a lot out of them. Uh, I think it really depends on a particular question that we can then get into. What are the right comparisons? Should we compare? Should we compare only people who have been working full time or not? I don't know. It depends. Okay, great. Yeah, a lot there. Um, maybe we can try to unpack that. So, your example of the you know looking at MBA graduates from the University of Chicago. I remember Walter Block had a similar thing when he lectures on this topic. And he said, if you just look at never been married academics, and I don't remember what academic, if that means like you have a PhD, I, I don't remember exactly what he meant by academic, but clearly, you know, a, a higher than a college degree, um, then women have a, a an advantage like that, you know, j- just looking at the population of people who are employed, if you're, um, if you know, an, an academic who has never been married, then women on average make more than men. And that, you know, I don't know if you've been on hiring committees, Brian, but that certainly lines up with my experience at an, in, you know, working at two different um, uh, colleges and to see like when we had to hire somebody, clearly the the women applicants were given very strong attention just because mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's just good for everybody. You know what I mean? And so the idea that um, that, the, you know, there's some penalty that, that is in place right now for that just purely, oh, because people don't like to hire women or they don't think women are good workers or something like that's that clearly cannot be the major explanation of some of those gross figures. Um, it just doesn't, you know, and there's also all the other arguments like 
supposing that were the case, it, it, this is the kind of thing too I'll say, Brent, like people who just repeat those figures and to say, okay, well, you know, you also believe with your worldview, like if someone who just thinks, oh, this is just rampant sexism, look at how much women get underpaid. And they'll even say for the same work. Like that's the thing. They don't merely just say a statistic that's misleading. A lot of people will say that and then just flat out say, women get paid 83 cents to the man's dollar for the same work. And so then I'll come along and say, well, geez, if, if we know that these, you know, factory owners and business owners are so cutthroat that they're willing to, you know, shut down jobs, you know, shut down factories here and outsource them to India to take advantage of cheap labor, you'd think they could just fire all the men here and just replace them with women. And all of a sudden they just boosted their profit margin. You know, they just cut their labor costs by 17%. Mm -hmm. Like no one thought of that, like that, or that's how much they hate women, <laughs> you know? And it's, yeah, yeah. when you start putting like, Oh, and it's just, so it's, it's kind of like, come on, this, this, this can't be as simplistic as what you're saying. So I guess, Brian, my question is, um, you know, once someone does want to investigate and just purely curious, like you said, Clearly, in general, I imagine 50-year-olds make more than 25-year-olds, except for, like, the NFL. That's not going to be true. Yeah, yeah. right. But in other areas, and even that's interesting, right, to understand, well, why would that be? How come in, in many industries, 50-year-olds make more than 25-year-olds, but not in professional sports? You know, and it's – so to go through those things, and it's interesting to see, and then probably 50-year-olds make more than 85-year-olds in most things, but maybe not in a few – and then you can say why, and it would be kind of silly to say, oh, yeah, society in general doesn't like 25-year-olds and 85-year-olds. Like that, you know what I mean? Like that's just too – so to understand the forces behind it, are you saying that Claudia Golden's work is useful to – you know, if you did want to dive into a particular statistic and unpack it and kind of try to figure out what's driving this result, that her work would be pretty useful? Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely right. In particular, it's useful because – it uses supply and demand, which I'm a, a big fan of, uh, to to make sense of these things. So, so you you know you told the story of the employer who is in a sense overpaying for men. So why why don't competitive pressures uh, uh, like you know force it so that only employers who are willing to hire women are therefore going to make larger profits? Why doesn't the market completely push towards them? Well, you know. Uh, as as many of your listeners are going to be, uh, you know, fans of Austrian economics, we, there's a lot about things don't instantaneously adjust. Time matters. Uh, previous investments matter. Asset specificity matters. It takes a while to build up capital. Uh, it takes a while to build up skills. And these things are going to be kind of what economists call frictions in, in the market. Frictions not in the sense that, like, the government can solve them. It's just a matter of fact that things don't instantaneously adjust. There are sexist people who can, can make enough profit to survive. There are racist people who can make enough profit to survive if they have other things going their way. And maybe those things are other policies. I mean, occupational licensing being one example of a, of a, a supply restriction that may uh, 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 temper the sort of you know competitive effects that we imagine – uh, playing out like there, there, I think there's a tension. It's easy to poke holes in in the other side on this, but I think there's a tension in kind of the knee jerk reaction that there's no such thing as a wage gap. Otherwise, you're saying that people, you know, are losing money on purpose. Well, 
maybe that's true in a true free market, but I hear all the time that we don't live in a free market in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Like there's lots of things that are in the way. That's the nature of real economies that they're not these. Uh, there's lots of policies, good, bad, indifferent, that affect maybe tip the scale one way or the other. And we should, you know, be aware of that. In particular, um, you know, Golden's work, especially recent work, highlights that there's a big, what they call a non-linearity to pay off. Basically, if you are willing to work a ton of hours and work terrible, you know, terrible times, be on call to, to, to go to Tokyo at a moment's notice, to be called into the office because of some emergency, you're going to get paid a lot, okay? Mm. You know, to, to, to be willing to work that much, you have to get in exchange, you have to be paid a lot. And that's very nonlinear, which means that the, the people who work the most aren't just going to, you know, if you work twice as many hours, you're not just going to take home twice as much pay. You're going to take up three, four, five times as much pay. Okay. Why does that exist? Why is that the nature of the labor market? Why is that the return to the way technology works? Is policy affecting that? Are there things that are, take doctors for, for instance, we all know that there's a you know, there are lots of policies in place that restrict new doctors entering. Okay, in response, you get an increase of demand for doctors. Supply can't respond, and the supply of the number of doctors can't respond to that increased demand. The only other, or one of the main other margins in which things can change is each doctor or some subset of doctors can work more hours, and they get paid a bunch more because of that. That's not a. It doesn't lead us to free market, anti-free market. Uh, conclusions. That's just like something worth worth studying. And you could imagine that these policies are putting the scale, you know, putting a finger on the scale relative to some other policies, putting a finger on the scale towards things that men uh, uh, tend to, for a variety of reasons, choose to do more. Not, not not none of my story has anything to do with discrimination with sexism. It's just. As an observable fact, men tend to work super, super long hours more than women do. And if policies push it that way, okay, well, maybe we could ch we could think through what other policies uh, would affect that to kind of reverse it and kind of even things out more. Yeah, that's. Um, I'm glad you went through that stuff because it's this is something too that would come up, not so much on the male female alleged wage gap, but um, like between races, and that sometimes, yeah, I've had people. Well, you know, and, and you try to be real careful in how you say things and not not stick your chin out and whatever. But still, I have people come back like, oh, so you're just saying, you know, uh, black workers are lazy or something. You know, what I mean, someone someone's talking to you like that on Twitter. Obviously, they're getting real emotional and they're trying to make it that mm -hmm. anyone who disagrees with me is a bad person and a racist, mm -hmm. as opposed to you know, and I'm you know, when I, when I was just trying to show. It couldn't, you know, it's it's too not simplistic to just say, yeah, any statistical discrepancy must be solely attributable to inherent bias and discrimination on the part of every single employer in the United States. Like that just doesn't make any sense, you know? And so, but then to come back and say, well, no, not in the way you're saying it, but it could be that government schools or what are commonly called public schools tend to be worse in areas that minorities live in, you know what I mean? And so there, that's not you know, that's not their fault. That's a historical mm -hmm. thing. And that's something I could lay at the feet of the horribly mismanaged government school system, which if we had a, you know, a free market in education, I don't think you'd see these get, you know, yes, poor people would not have as good quality schools, but I don't think the gap would be like it is now where 
some schools, you know, your kids go in there, they might get shot. Mm-hmm. And so that's certainly, you know, one thing you could bring up. So again, Brian, I, I'm agreeing with you that I don't think sometimes I think there's a tendency for fans of the free market to just say, no, these, these disparities are all just because, you know, they should, they should go get a better education or work harder or something. It's, mm-hmm. it's their own fault or you know, their culture of their people. And, and that's why end of story. And you know, that to the extent that no, there's plenty of government interventions that are bleeding to this outcome. Since you're a free marketeer, you can focus on those too and not make it just sound like, Oh, it's, you know, if you're not getting paid as much as your neighbor, it's a, it's a hundred percent your fault. Yeah. I think that there's an important aspect that you need to like try to understand the data and, and the theories and the arguments, regardless of what the policy, what you think will be the policy implications, because it doesn't always cut the way that it doesn't need to cut the way that kind of sometimes people push it. Like if there's a wage gap, therefore we're going to implement some heavy handed policy. If there's not a wage gap, then we'll let free markets, you know, rip. I, I don't think either of those are going to happen. So we should uh, be interested in understanding the world as it is uh, in order to kind of make sense of it. I think, I think the naive story on both sides, the naive, you know, 83 cents on the dollar as some evidence of, uh, pure discrimination by employers is is bad, and so is the this could never exist because you know once we control for enough stuff, which may be controlling for too much stuff, you know once we control for a lot of stuff, then this goes away. It depends on the question you want to ask like like if you if you what's called you know over control or overfit, you could kind of explain away everything and so you're 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 really left with a kind of a case-by-case basis of what's relevant and it's going to vary through time and i think this is one of the interesting things about about golden's work like the reason that men and women in 2023 have different labor market outcomes is not the same as what it was in 1970 or 1920 or you know 1800 there are going to be different forces at play in each time period for different groups within those time periods as well uh and it's worth it's worth understanding uh, those things to try to to you know eventually we want to you know maybe think about how to change policy or maybe we want to think about how to improve our own decision making. Like, do we do we? I, I think if you look at Golden's work, you know, she has she has a lot of work. One one particular big paper on the Quiet Revolution, which is about how uh, you know just how people think about the possible jobs how that changes the job that they end up pursuing. Like if, if you don't consider it possible, you know, it's 1920 and, and you're a woman and because of policy reasons or social norms, you don't think it's possible that you can be a doctor. You're not going to be a doctor. You're not going to go to school to do all that. It's just not going to happen. Well, your thoughts about what can, your possible careers are is not set in stone. And so we can think about in our own lives, like what are these kind of, implicit uh, uh, barriers, explicit barriers, what exist at, at different times at different places? Um, it's, it's a rich, complex question and kind of talking and, and, and I'm just even talking about the U.S. right now. Forget mm-hmm. talking about cross-country uh, comparisons. Like it, it's, a, it's a complicated question. We, should sh- we shouldn't shy away from that. Yeah, you mentioned something there that this – I did want to come back to this point um, – I think it was this summer. It was either this summer or last summer. I think it was this summer. Um, there were, I forget what happened. I think it might have been maybe Jordan Peterson or somebody, or maybe, no, I think it was Matt Walsh, actually. 
somehow did a thing on the wage, the male female wage gap and was real dismissive of it. And then a bunch of academic economists and like econometricians, whatever, we're all just having a big chortle about this stupid Neanderthal right winger who didn't understand the first thing about statistical analysis. And they're all making fun of him for ignoring colliders. And so I didn't, you know, and I was trying to get in like, what are you guys talking about? And, mm-hmm. um, and then, so somebody, you know, that knew me and, and I, I don't know, I won't say his name cause I don't know if he wants me to talk, but he was trying to give me like, well, it could be things like this where, um, the, the big picture was to say, yes, you could control for certain things, but then depending on the scenario, maybe that's like obt- being obtuse. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so the example he gave me, like we did a little model and we were you know, arguing back and forth about it, but he was saying, suppose there is like raw, actual, unfounded discrimination, sexism against women such that even if a man and a woman did literally the same you know, job performance, the man would get paid a hundred dollars and the woman would only get paid $98. Okay. So let's assume there's 2% just raw. Like what, you know, what we mean is completely unfair discrimination for no other reason than just prejudice. Okay. Now, knowing that if we then may have a, a model where there's different college majors, let's say and some majors are harder to complete than others, like physics, it's hard to get a physics to, you know, to get a certain, to get, to get a 3.8, is a physics major is harder than to get a 3.8 is an English major. And now partly maybe why, if you have like a, a, a model of education, like a Brian Kaplan approach where it's the whole point, not the whole point, but in terms of what you're going to get paid, it's just a signaling device. And it's not really the content of what you're getting that why you might choose the physics major is because that's going to give you higher pay down the road. And so in a sense, it's like there's this 2% tax that is levied on the women that the men don't face in terms of their future earning potential because of that raw sexism that we just stipulated at the outset. And that in turn might mean on the margin, a woman or, you know, you know, an 18 year old or whatever entering college is less likely to major in physics than in English because you know, the, the benefits are truncated because of that implicit tax. And so that in practice, fewer women than would otherwise be the case major in physics. And then that, itself contributes to the measured discrepancy in the male female pay so that it becomes bigger than 2%. Mm-hmm. And so they think it's, you know, so therefore they're saying to control for all these things and to, that that's sort of missing the part of the point, because if it weren't for that 2% raw discrimination, then more girls would have gone into the harder sciences. And then, so anyway, that that's yeah. one of the arguments I saw. So I don't, do you want to just comment on that whole yeah, it, it, this is what makes it a, a hard problem uh, because people are forward-looking, things take time, and you can't just do simple controls in the way that you can in like a – like if you are actually an experimenter, then you could basically treat the controls as things that you're, – your levers that you're changing. But we're more often than not, especially in these types of questions about career, we're simply observers, and so we don't – have the controls to just kind of turn one thing on, turn one thing off. We can't, we can't uh, imagine turning on the discrimination without turning on the effect of which major people choose. And so these things are all intertwined. And so that's why we have to use a whole bunch of different evidence to try to, uh, you know, triangulate what we think is the most reasonable conclusion on all of these things. Now, um, it, 
yeah, yes, this is something you you need to to worry about. Um, at the end of the day, it's a you know empirical matter of how big of a force this is uh, relative to other things. So, is it is it the case that this is why women aren't going into physics as much, or is it? Because of some other aspect of the job that they, you know, physicists tend to work long hours or, you know, people take jobs or that. Like, there's a lot of other things that it could be. It doesn't need – that's one story, one reason that we should maybe be skeptical of the simple controlling for solution. Um, but then, okay, it doesn't establish the other story. It's, it's, it means we need to dig deeper and think about these mechanisms. And again, Golden's – work is trying to get at that. It's using surveys. Surveys have their problems, of course, but using surveys about what types of jobs people think they could have, you know, and, and that maybe gives us some information of like, are they going to be penalized? Are they not going to be penalized? Do people think they're going to be penalized? If people don't think that they're going to be penalized at all, or there's no like social, uh, you know, pressure that they, that they would do to get out of those professions, then, you know, we can try to disentangle the different effects. Again, hard question. All of them are probably true, right? There is there is sexism by certain employers. There is favoritism by other employers. There's forces that push uh, women out of certain fields. There's forces that push women into certain fields. It's not, again, it's both sides. I think the naive response isn't the right one. And it's a complicated issue. It's like, it's, it's, the you know in in a sense it's trying to summarize all of labor markets because what is it it is men's women uh, men, men, can't talk it is men's wages we need to know something about men's wages we need to know something about women's wages and that is everyone so we need to know i'm not trying to take a stand on anything related to gender issues mm-hmm. uh, uh but you know that that's the market and, and to properly measure all of those things we need to know overall labor markets and now we're trying to collapse it into one number it's going to be t- like let's let's try to summarize all labor markets into one number that's going to be it's going to be missing something whatever number you come up with whether you come up with 83 you come up with 71 you come up with 100 it's going to be missing some details mm-hmm. and we shouldn't lose sleep over that. That's why the world is interesting. That's why we need economic theory to help us sort through things. That's why there's more to learn uh, and, and why there's rewards to teaching us about this stuff like a Nobel Prize. Yeah, I guess – so thank you and I agree with what you're saying there. The reason I, I was intrigued by that particular uh, approach that the, the guy who pulled me aside showed mm-hmm. me was that you know it's pretty standard in this area to say things like, oh, um, and I, and I would I said this too like when I wrote my politically correct politically incorrect guide to capitalism you know I took on the male female wage gap and went through some of the correction you know the correcting for mm-hmm. holding certain things constant, and then I acknowledged I said look it, it, if you want to blame like a patriarchal word worldview or something you can but the what the mechanism would not be employers looking at a male employee and a female and they know full well that the female is going to deliver just as much to the bottom line, but they just refuse to pay her as much. I said, that really doesn't make sense is the, the primary fulcrum mm-hmm. uh, for this outcome. Just again, just because of the competition, like they would need to be not just a handful or even the majority of employers, but 
in any given industry, like every single last one of them. Because if there was just one major company, you know, I was like, well, why doesn't Oprah hire all the women? You know, because <laughs> she hates women too. Like it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because they, they, again, you would just see in practice, then the one company that has their head on straight would have a lot of women working for them. If, if it really were the case that you get the same output, but not paying as much. So, but what I did say was now, if you want to say, oh, but in our society, the expectation is that when there are kids, that the wife stays home and raises them, whereas the husband is the breadwinner. Well, then that attitude, which you can call sexist if you want, um, th- then I could see, you know, that, that could make sense. So then the employers, mm-hmm. because the women are getting paid less on average, is because they don't have as many years in the workforce, or the employer knows, oh, yeah, a 24 year old applying for a job and she's a woman and she's married. I bet you down the road she's going to come back and say, I need, I need to take time off or, you know, I, I can only work part time now because I got to stay home with the kid. And so you're going to be less likely to want to bring her on and put all years of training into building up this employee that you hope gives you a stream of output. If there's a chance, you know, that this employee is more likely to bail out than the guy. Yeah. And so that was those sorts of things. But again, I was just trying to isolate and say, you know, is it the fight? But what was I liked about the uh, again the, the theoretical possibility about this implicit tax from the raw discrimination was that there, it wasn't just some general cultural attitude like, mm-hmm. oh, girls aren't good at science. You're supposed to go into, you know, counseling and and uh, education and stuff and let the men handle physics. You know, that would be one thing. But if instead it was more of a cost benefit, like, oh, what are the what are the rewards to me from majoring in physics versus English? Mm-hmm. And if it's raw sexism is affecting that, and that can then have like an amplification effect. That's why I thought that was kind of neat that there, it was like the raw sexism that multiplied back through the system. But even there, when I was talking to this guy, I was modeling it out with him and showing, okay, but still using a regression analysis, even with his approach, it would still pop out. You could isolate and say the raw sexism is still 2%, Mm -hmm. even with with his whole, you know what I mean? So in other words, we still could isolate using the standard regression analysis to control for these things. And then you would just, you could tell a story if you want to say, yeah, but some of this other stuff is, is in turn, it feeds through, but anyway, so I'm just kind of giving some yeah, context. You know, I mean, this is in this why you need economic theory to, to work through these types of problems of what is a, a reasonable comparison and what is not. And then it's a question of whether the data matches, you know, what the theory is. The, one of the problems is like, Suppose you want to you want to test that you think that that's the way the world works this this tax, okay. But if it's through a different mechanism, you're going to be picking up other stuff that's not uh, you know that's not there. So again, it, it makes it a really hard question, and why why boiling it down to one number makes it pretty difficult. And let's just we can just throw on other complications. Suppose you uh, suppose. Women don't know. This seems reasonable. Suppose when you're 18, you don't know whether you're going to want to have kids and want to stay at home with them, but you think there's a possibility. Well, that you know, you know. So you you choose to to pick a job uh, with this idea that that you might stay at home eventually, or might want to you know take some time off, or have a more flexible schedule. Right? It's not an either or. It could be you know I'm going to work 32 hours versus. 45 or whatever. Um, but it turns out that once you get to be, you know, you get to be that stage, you decide you don't want to take time off. Okay. But you've already invested in like a career path that with the possibility that you may make time off. So even there, you say, okay, we're only going to look at people who 
uh, didn't have kids. Well, the fact that in, you know, in their, you know, what ultimately happened, they didn't have kids doesn't tell us that the possibility that they may have wanted to have kids didn't affect them earlier on. And so you can't even look at, you can't even compare necessarily, uh, you know, men without children to, to women without children because ex ante before they, you know, finalize that decision, whether they have kids or not, they may not know and they may make different decisions. Again, it's a super hard question that anyone I, I wish i had something more interesting to say but like me too who has that's a why i had you slam, on <laughs> uh, <laughs> slam dunk story but i think i think i think one of the things to go back to your point in 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 your book which i think is is helpful is to okay here's a particular mechanism that a lot of people think is true mm-hmm. and here is a force in which it may not be true it, mm-hmm. it could be more complicated it could be uh you know this this implicit tax story but I think by pushing forward on a particular theory of what happens, a particular theory of the way that that causes this to arise, then we can start digging for data and theories on that particular particular theory. Mm-hmm. Because okay, so if suppose you think it's all through employer, forget the tax aspect. You think it's yep. all through employer. Um, Dis- like discrimination at the end, like forget right. the investments which majors, you know. We could we could try to go out and and whether we whether this is through experiments whether this is through data collection of other types we could like try to measure different industries uh, you know employer sexism along different dimensions and then mm-hmm. see okay does it correlate with what we think it should do do industries mm-hmm. where the employers have more sexist attitudes is there a bigger wage gap maybe but we can only when we say okay this is the mechanism on which we're interested in can we then go to the data and say, does this correspond? If we're just talking overall gender wage gap, we're going to be talking about you know employer discrimination. We're going to be talking about societal pressures and how do we think about that? We're going to think of, we're going to uh, be be smuggling in uh, d- discussions about about uh, you know the way teachers respond to different genders. Like it's all bundled up, and we can't. I don't. I don't get a lot out of that, like overall discussion. I just don't see what we're going to learn from, you know. In general, is it across again across time and place? Mm-hmm. Is it is it going to go away? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that societies differ in how they think about men and women and differences across genders. Like that's not a, I don't think a controversial point of view. Maybe that plays out in the data. Maybe it doesn't about different wage gaps. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. And I think folks probably caught, but I am friends with Brian and was kidding about that. I wish he was more interesting. Um, or actually, I do wish you were more interesting, but you you are well above the threshold for me so. being glad I invited you, put it that way. Um, so you, you said something that reminded me um, when you were talking about it's, it's, it's really subtle things where just keeping their future options open, like maybe a woman who might want to have a bunch of kid or kids and so she goes down a career path where that's that's an option. But then even if she doesn't pull the trigger on that, um, then and who could blame her? Right. Like looking at the men yeah. online, I wouldn't want to get married with them either. Um, and so then she you know, doesn't do that. So then even just controlling and looking back and saying, oh, women who you know didn't get married or didn't have kids, they're not getting paid as much. You know, so there could be things it would be hard to really tease out. You'd have to get inside their heads, you know, and it'd be it'd be tricky. Um, that reminded me when I, 
uh, I got contacted by someone from the Daily Show uh, when it was is it Noah Trevor? Am I saying the name right? Is that the guy who was I doing think, it? I think hosting it for the, a while was doing it. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was when he was the host, and so it wasn't him to reach. It It was like you know one of the staffers, and he said, "Yeah, we're thinking of doing a segment on the male female wait." Or no, it was um, paid family leave. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. And we scoured the web because we wanted to. We were interested to bring on somebody who disagreed with it, and yours was the only person we could find. (laughs) And so the guy like got me on the phone, like he was pre-screening me because they couldn't believe like who could possibly be against this, and I you know so. And I was doing, and I was trying to sell the guy because I wanted them to have me. I mean, I knew full well I'd of go course, into the lion's yeah, yeah, den, yeah. and it wasn't like I was going to yeah. convince him. The point would be to trot me out, like get a load It'd of this guy, yeah. you know. <laughs> hey, the 1950s called. You know, they want their attitude back. Um, and so, but anyway, but it was just funny, and I was making the case to him that the primary losers of paid family leave would be uh, married women who don't end up having kids. And he was just, what? What are you talking about? And I was explaining to him because, in a sense, you know, like, and I exaggerate. I said, well, what if the the law said if a, if someone gets pregnant, or sorry, if someone has kids and decides to exercise the exit option while they're working with you and they get have kids, you have to buy them an SUV. Because after all, if you had a newborn, having an SUV would be convenient, you know, to go get diapers and stuff from the store and whatever. So it'd be good to have an SUV. So the law says if any of your employees has their first baby, you as the employer have to give them a brand new SUV. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, can you, that's like a ticking time bomb. So when you're hiring people on the front end, you would be very concerned to know, is there, what's the chance this person's going to have a kid in the next five years or their first child? And I said, clearly that would penalize, you know, 22 year old married women who didn't ha- yet have kids. Even if they didn't decide to have, they would be, you know, they would have to be either, they wouldn't want to get hire them or they would pay them a lot less because of that possibility. And it was just, he just, well, no, it would be illegal. You couldn't pay them. You couldn't just not hire them because they're 22-year-old women. That's illegal. We, and anyway, I just yeah, was not yeah, making yeah. headway with the guy, but it was just kind of funny that he, when I told him the primary losers would be women who chose not to have kids but who could have had kids, yeah. he just didn't get what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 a good uh, encapsulation of, of the importance, again, of economic theory to think through – in common sense, true, but but I mean to think through the relative ways in which people will adjust, the way that people like economics is all about incentives and how people respond. And okay, the policy isn't just in place, and then that's the end of the world. You're pointing out, which I think is the right uh, way to go. You're pointing out that there are all these ways in which people will respond to it. It doesn't always cut the way that you want, you know. And 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 that's a it's a difficult. We, we can look back at different times and see, again, we can do economic history. We can see times in which policies favored leave recently and adjustments and see how employers responded, how workers responded. It's never going to be this kind of clear, clean experiment that we, we would hope it would be. We can, we can think through these things. Uh, but let's also remember that like a lot of these things are not uh, you know, policy driven. Policy plays a huge role. There's tons of policy intervention that affects the way the labor market works. But there are things that are not because the government told you to do it. Companies are are introducing leave not because they're being forced by the government. They're, they're jumping ahead of that. You know, uh, okay, what are the effects of that? We can, we can study that. Does it affect 
within that, you know, it's a different question because we're kind of looking company by company or groups of companies, but what can we affect? Does that affect trajectory of, of labor outcomes going forward by allowing this flexibility? Again, we, it, maybe it narrows some gap, maybe it widens other gaps. I don't, I don't know. We, we, can, we, we can look at these things and there's lots of variation out there in the world. Again, for the empiric, more empirically minded than I am, there's lots of variation out there in the world to see when things cut one way versus when they cut another way. Yeah, thanks, Brian. For So to be clear, folks, I wasn't against paid family leave. I was against the government mandating that all companies, you know, above a certain number yeah. of employees, which is what the issue was. Because yeah, the talking yeah, yeah. point at the time was the U.S. is the only major industrialized country that doesn't have this. How could anyone? Mm. And they looked high and low, and I was the one guy they could find that was making an argument against it. Okay, I, we, I, I, I moved. I moved a, a big perk of moving to my current job is I got some uh, family leave for my for my some paid leave for my second kid, and like that's mm -hmm. a free market response to trying to attract me away from tenure. Uh, your tenure track position, right? right so, right. so markets adjust to these things, and people respond. It'll be interesting with how work from home changes, you know, how people care about flexibility and right. time off and stuff like that. But there's these things are constantly evolving. And I think one of Golden's interesting things is to show that they're constantly evolving, uh, to not kind of sit at any time period and kind of judge it as good or bad or who do you blame, but like. These things are changing over time, and different different people will will take uh, a different different um, forces will be at play at different different time periods. Like again, the reason that if there's a gap, depending on how you measure it, the reason it exists today is not going to be the same as why it existed a hundred years ago. Okay, I unfortunately have a hard stop in two minutes. So Brian, if what would you say? Like someone's listening, they're intrigued. Can you maybe give a guide, like to say, all right, if you want to read. Uh, Claudia Golden's work start with this and then you know if you like that then try to you know can you give a, a little bit of guidance of the a map of the terrain yeah so she has she, she's done a lot of interviews over the years if you want to listen to podcast interviews she's done those people uh, your listeners might be aware of, of Tyler Cowen he's got an mm -hmm. interesting podcast with her you know podcasts are easy in the topics, that's why we're, we're here discussing that. On her, on her own writing, she's actually, because she's an economic historian, she writes books. Mm -hmm. And books tend to be easier to read than, than, uh, than, than, than academic articles. So her, I forget the order of them, but her most recent book is on like family and related to that. So that's a, that's an interesting one to get into. Um, she has a, just, a, just, if you're, if you're interested in kind of, um, uh, a very particular aspect of this. I think her paper uh, with Lawrence Katz on the pill is interesting. I forget the title of it. It's in my thread. But if you search Claudia Golden, the pill is tracing out the effect of the pill on on uh, women's labor market outcomes. Again, because it changes, just circle back, like why it's a super interesting example. Suppose... Suppose instead of uh, you know deciding to have kids or not, you you just don't have control over that. You don't know. Well, that's going to affect how big of an investment you're going to make. Are you going to are you going to try to get the big partner job, knowing that you don't have an idea of whether you'll get pregnant in three years, and 
therefore you'd have to leave. Brian, do you know where babies come from? <laughs> I, 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 uh, as, do we as, need to have so, a second installment that maybe we'll put a little disclaimer at the front for? <laughs> <laughs> so that would be a unique one. I've, yeah. I've, uh, I've seen a fair amount of human action podcasts. I think that would make a unique <laughs> right, one. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're, we're living up to the name of the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's a good. It's it's an academic paper, so beware of that. But I think the like intro and stuff gives mm-hmm. you gives you a good sense. But I would start with the books if people want to read. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, so folks, we'll put links to that. I'll I'll find the the Tyler Cowen's interview with her and that article and then a link to a book or so forth. Okay, well, unfortunately, I need to wrap this up. Uh, thank you, so folks. My guest this week has been Brian Albrecht. Brian, thanks again for your time. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.